this morning, we're in a section of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, as you can see, 21 through 24. And this will complete a section that has kind of a chiastic structure. And it has to do, remain in the condition in which you're called. And we'll see what the implications of that are. Let's begin with prayer. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness and kindness that you've given us the hope of the gospel. You've placed us as part of your family, redeemed, bought with a price, and serving you, our Lord. May we understand your word and have a clear understanding of the privilege of being part of your family. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we go to verse um, 21, I have a lot of notes on this one slide because it's really important to understand the context in order to understand what all the issues are Paul's dealing with and even understand his self-understanding as an apostle who at the one and same time is a slave of Christ. 1 Corinthians 7.21, New American Standard Bible. You were, call, were you called why, while a slave? Do not worry about it. But if you are able also to become free, rather do that. And as we see, the word free is used in a couple different ways here. In this particular case, meaning freedom from obligation to the master who owns the slave in the Roman system of slavery. And it's also, as we go forward, we'll see that everyone in Christ is free, whatever their status. So we're going to really emphasize our relationship with God as believers, if we know Christ and what the world thinks about us and whatever our role may be in this world. So here um, there's an imperative, the first imperative, do not worry about it. And I want to emphasize that. It'll come through this whole sermon. One of the things that happens, I know for a fact in American Christianity, because I'm part of it, is that we get way too concerned about status as far as who's important and who isn't. And in that uh, worldly way of looking at it, if that comes into the church, which it should not, we want to keep score. We want to know who's the greatest. We want to know who's important, who I might be better than, and so on. And the status we may have as far as the world in our education or our jobs, our families, where we live, and so on, is not important in this scheme of things because we're called to be the Lord's servants and to be part of an eternal family caused by God's work of grace through the gospel. So if you don't like your job, don't worry about it. Literally what it says. We, uh, it's very hard for Americans to hear this verse at all. It doesn't mean you can't get a different job. It doesn't mean things don't change. I firmly believe, and I have to believe this, 
to live through life and all the different things have come my way is that we spend too much time trying to control the outcome and better ourselves and make things better any way we can in our temporal situation, almost to the extreme of pushing out where we stand in Christ. And I firmly believe that God is in charge of deploying his people on the scene of history, according to his will, by his grace, as he saves people in various situations, and immediately they become his ambassadors there. So this person here, addressed by Paul, were you called while a slave? Now, there were a lot of different kinds of slaves. You might be one in Rome with a very high status, charge of a whole household. They found tombstones that were inscribed, so-and-so, slave of, doulos is the Greek word, and then somebody really important in that province. They were proud of that. You might be, and we wouldn't, certainly, uh, slavery is not, has been abolished from um, most of Western civilization, which is a great thing, the type of abusive slavery that we've known in history. But in Rome, it was more of an economic set of relationships. One of the scholars I read pointed out that in Corinth, to, to where Paul wrote to, a third of the people were probably slaves, a third were probably freed slaves, and the other third were citizens who weren't in any sort of slavery. So this is a common issue for everyone. So to those who were slaves, and they're called here, meaning called to salvation, Paul is saying, don't worry about your situation. When God saves you, immediately your status has changed. Not your job, not your income, not the normal things that we might think we would like to have changed, but your relationship with God for all eternity. I'll emphasize that in this sermon. And so when Jesus spoke about the cares of this world and the worries of this world and the things that people worry about, and the things that motivate us, he dealt with this. So does Paul. God can use us, and he can use us where we are, and who he saves, where he saves them, is part of his providence and his effective call that deploys people on the scene of history. So don't be concerned. Second imperative, do that. In which case here, to employ the Greek word, can also be translated to employ that option. If you're able to be free, which often happened in the Roman system, then employ that option. That will give more uh, uh, different ways that a person could serve. The word called here is the effective call to salvation that came to someone while a slave. Do not worry is a negated imperative. So the word called here refers to called unto salvation that effectively was heard, believed, Christ is confessed, 
the person of serving Christ. And so this concern about care, it really is a big issue for every one of us in this world. In 1 Peter 5, 7, I'll cite that to you, casting all your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. He cares for you. So the um, question is this, make use of this if it becomes possible. There's an alternative reading that shows up in the new um, RSV, but I don't think it's a good reading. It would say, don't take the option, stay where you are. I don't believe that's what Paul is saying. So I won't spend a lot of exegetical. Oops, excuse me. It works better if I don't tip it over. I won't spend a lot of exegetical energy with that. The key word in question, cryomai, means employer to make use. Make use of the option to take your freedom. Now, I want to cite a scholar. I'm going to cite a bunch of them today. We honor scholarship because the goal of exegetical Bible preaching is to understand the biblical author's meaning. The reader doesn't determine the meaning, the author does. The scholarship gives us the tools to better understand the biblical author's, who was inspired by the Holy Spirit, in this case Paul, meaning. One Greek scholar, Dr. Thistleton, done a lot of good work on this. And he says this, even if there is a possibility that you might come to be free, uh, faithfully reflects the protasis. Eric's talked about that, protasis, apotasis. The protasis of the conditional. In other words, the if, the if part. What is the apotasis, the then, which is implied? It is that which remains the ongoing theme and subtext of the whole of chapter 7. No, then he cites a lot of things we've already covered in chapter 7. Marriage, celibacy, remarriage, circumcision, menial slavery, managerial slavery, uh, being freed. All of these things are things that come up in life. He's going to go on, deal with virgins, uh, marriage, singleness. All of these things are going to come up. So all these things of life have been dealt with or will be dealt with. And so that's where the then comes in. Back to the citation. Paul has moved from various circumstances to various circumstances in chapter 7. This is why the noun may be left implicit, which kreomai I mentioned, which both matters and does not matter. These do not promote or impede spiritual status. But the gospel, says Thistleton, has lived out through earthly institutions and constraints, not in spite of them. That's, that is so profound, I hope I can do justice to what the text is saying in the Scripture. Thistleton has really nailed it. American Christianity in particular is seriously flawed in assuming that what Christianity is all about is having a better social status in this life. Whatever will give us a status upgrade. 
whether it's the health and wealth gospel or the dominion theology or whatever it may be, if we can gain our social upgrade, then that's the whole point of Christianity. But that's not the point. Because everyone who's believed the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior and is converted and born of God has already received the greatest status upgrade anyone will ever have, ever, whoever they are. We've gone from lost sinners, bound for hell, living in darkness, without hope, without God in the world, and no matter how glorious our life may be, living on the most expensive mansion on a point in, on Lake Minnetonka, I get to fish in front of one of those sometimes. Um, that's not, what is it if you don't know Christ? Maybe all things are true. That could be. But the fact is, we have to believe the promises of God. Being a son or daughter of the king, to be with him. Eric had a great Sunday school this morning on future millennium and then the eternal state of affairs. There's nothing greater. And people who are thinking differently, not biblically, mock us and they claim that gospel preachers are just trying to keep you from getting ahead in life. When they're telling you about eternal life, forgiveness of sins, God indwelling the people, being part of the family of God, singing praises to him for what he did for us, they're just trying to keep you from advancement. But that's a logical fallacy based on claiming to know someone's motives. Do you suppose it's possible that a gospel preacher can actually believe the Bible, can actually believe that people are sinners, and that we were lost, and that we were slaves of sin, and that we were bound for hell, and that when God adopted us into his family, as his sons and daughters, we've already been promoted to glory. Why wouldn't somebody believe that? And you can't assume bad motives because you don't know somebody else's heart. Only God does. So uh, to finish some things that Thistleton pointed out, all these things can have some use within the context of living out the gospel in the everyday. He says, neither eschatological perfectionism, meaning we can already be perfected, which would sweep them all aside, nor ascetic religion. That means take an oath of poverty and join a monastery. That's, that's not right. Which would value some over others, reflects God's, Paul's, excuse me, Paul's gospel of freedom. We are free in Christ. If it was so horrible, what Paul's saying, why does he call himself a slave of Christ? Let's go to the next verse. For he was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he was called while free is Christ's slave. So what Paul does here is he takes the true honor that belongs to being a child of the king, to being part of the family of God, of knowing Christ, having eternal promises, and makes that our identity 
And what we are in this world, whatever it may be, pales in comparison to the glory that's to be revealed. Redemption, as I've already said, is a great status reversal for all who believe, despite their former state. I think it's hard for Christians to believe this because so much of Christendom is unregenerate. There are millions, yay, billions of people who think they're Christians who do not know Christ. They don't, they're not born of God. They're going through religious works. They're going through pietism or externalism or doing whatever, but they haven't been born of God. When you become a blood-bought, born-again child of the king, you have just got the greatest change and promotion of status that will ever happen to anyone at any time. And if that's the case, then why argue with each other about who's better in the church? doesn't make sense. Um, Siampa, by the way, I got to apologize. Uh, Adam told me that's a soft C, Siampa, not Kiampa. Siampa and Rosner say this. The verse announces a status reversal that is nothing short of revolutionary. That's what these scholars say. The slaves are given the higher rank as the Lord's free people, as opposed to the free in the church who are described as Christ's slaves. The implicit message to status-conscious believers was that social differences have no place in the church. God prefers the lowly things of this world, they say, over the wise and influential by human standards. God's values are not our values. The Word of God is taught so that our values begin to conform to God's values. And we begin to think like those who truly believe and not be dragged along into the value systems of the world which are marching toward judgment. I wrote down a statement I wanted to make. It's a, here are my notes. Belonging to Christ is a glorious honor and begins in this life at conversion. Furthermore, unlike the temporal relationships we have in this world, which involve value judgments about relative honor, worth, importance, and or shame or dishonor, our status in Christ will always be that of great honor, serving the king. When judging status in the church, worldly social differences have no place. Now, this is reflected in some of the passages in the Old Testament. Psalm 84, 10 through 12, I'll read it to you because uh, time is going to be a challenge here. Psalm 84, 10 through 12. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand outside. I would rather stand at the threshold of the house of my God than to dwell in tents of wickedness. For the Lord is a sun and a shield. The Lord 
which is Yahweh, gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, how blessed is the man who trusts in you. And so in the Old Testament, a day, just standing at the threshold is better in a lifetime in places of wickedness, which characterize this world. Look at all the horrible, wicked things that are done just trying to gain power in this world. Robbing people, cheating people, lying, trying to get ahead. And you don't realize the whole thing is headed for God's judgment. God will keep a hold of his people, bring us to himself. It would be a wrong thing. I'll summarize some of the other thoughts I have here. Paul's not creating a hierarchy in a church. I've mentioned that before. Anything the Bible says is good or a virtue, someone will turn it into works. Christendom has every system of works you can dream up. If it's good, if you think, well, it's good to be poor and a servant. Okay, you take an oath of poverty and swear obedience, an oath of obedience, and go join a monastery and have nothing to serve, then you'll be the greatest. But you're only the greatest in that distorted and perverted and ungodly system of religion. God determines how he deploys people. We don't have to take oaths, have somebody whip us, deny ourselves anything in order to be the greatest. Others will say the health and wealth gospel. The more money you have, the more godly you are. That's not what it says. We can't make these systems. We need to serve God where we are by his grace as he deploys us on the scene of history. And where we were, this is the topic here, is where we were when he saved us. I was a student at Iowa State. I was born of God. So I began serving. Turns out, by God's intervention, he called me to study theology and preach as I'm doing now. But God is in charge of that, not man. And it's not who's more honorable. It's how God uses us and where. Here's a statement that I have in my notes. Preachers who emphasize worldly status upgrade based on Christianity totally miss the point of Christianity. If upward social mobility was the point of the gospel, Paul knew nothing of it, nor did the other writers of the New Testament. God uses all who are his to bring honor to his name and does so wherever and however they're deployed on the scene of history. This deployment is done by God through providence not through human achievement or calculation. Why should I calculate? How can I get ahead? How can I have more followers? How can I be more important? I'll try this. I'll try that. Maybe I'll hire a consultant to to show me how to get ahead in my field of occupation. Whatever. How about taking care of the family God and teaching them the word and let God bring the fruit. What we have a dearth of is pure teaching of the word of God all across the country. That's what we need. Across the world, that matter. Let's go to verse 23. 
Here's why I stayed in, normally I go to something else, as I've been in some of the passages of 1 Corinthians on Communion Sunday, to emphasize redemption and atonement. But here it is, right in this text. 1 Corinthians 7.23, You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Now Paul is taking our redemption with an exodus motif and using the term slaves of men in a different sense, a different context. And bought with a price. So here is someone who receives this, is in the church at Corinth, who is a slave in the Roman system of slavery and may have honorable status in that particular situation. Or in some cases, they were pretty bad situations. It wasn't all good. Sometimes it was literally horrible. Not everybody had the option to become free. But then he says, do not become slaves of men. How would you become a slave of man when you just were bought with a price and became the Lord's slave? By adopting the value systems of the world around. Those who adopt the world's value system, the world's idea about what's honorable, the world's idea of getting ahead, the world's idea of how to be important and how to beat everybody else and defeat everybody else and become a winner, you adopt that. Even though you were bought with a price, now you just put yourself back in Egypt as a slave of men. If you live for this world and status in this world, you make yourself a slave of the fallen system of darkness. And it makes no sense for someone freed in Christ become a slave of men in a value system way. The one called while a slave belongs to the Lord, as do all who are saved by grace. We'll see this. How is it that we were bought? We were bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. We, we are bought by him for him, redeemed to serve him, to love him, to live lives that would glorify him by his grace. And I mentioned 1 Corinthians 6.20, which we preached on a while back. For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Live a life that would bring glory to God, not favor in the eyes of the wicked world around us, but would bring glory to God. Glorify God in your body. Paul reminds converted slaves of the stark contrast of lordships. This applies to all who are redeemed. We're all the Lord's slaves, and we're to serve him. And we've got great honor because no one more important could own us. Dr. Gordon Fee says the slave is free, and the free person is slave because both have been purchased by Christ through the blood of the cross. How eloquent, how simple, and how profound. All who are bought by the Lord for himself, by his own blood, have great freedom and honor. 
because of what God has done, not because we deserved any of it. He paid the price. Another commentary, Dr. Gardner, uh, is also very good. He says this, Paul was a Roman citizen and a slave to no one. Yet for him, being a slave, doulos, of Christ, was the greatest of all privileges and even became his self-designation. The idea is found in a number of places, no doubt, still has Old Testament ideas lying behind it. But the Lord's own teaching probably also serves, says Gardner, a likely background, especially in the parallelism of Jesus' words in John fifteen twenty. A servant, literally slave, is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they obeyed yours also. That is the preachers. Those, as we testify of Christ, those who believe will rejoice with us. It says in Exodus, talking about that Exodus motif. Exodus fifteen sixteen, Terror and dread will fall upon them. And the greatness of your arm, they are motionless as stone. Until your people pass over, O Lord, until the people pass over whom you have purchased. The Israelites, because of the promise God gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to Joseph, God raised up Moses and brought them out with a mighty hand and through blood sacrifice, which would prefigure the once for all shed blood of Jesus Christ. We can't allow social relations, public opinion, people who give us bad advice, interfere with serving the king. We need to serve the Lord. And we do so in occupations, family relationships, different places in life. But God has put us wherever we are to be his children, testifying to his grace and bringing honor to his holy name. Here's one I made note. Yeah, I have to cite this because I told myself I did. Dr. Thistleton, the context suggests that Paul's concern remains that of warning the addressees against obsessive, says Thistleton, preoccupations about status betterment. Status betterment. When I was writing a sermon, I saw an ad that came across TV to go to a Christian conference to learn how to have great status betterment, to use Thistleton's term. Be somebody. Don't be who we are now. You can be rich. You can be powerful. Come to our seminar. And it's portrayed as Christianity. I wonder what those Christians do with these passages. Did they ever read 1 Corinthians 7? Did they ever think about it? Did their pastors ever preach on it? No. They never heard of it. Proof text here, proof text there, proof text the other place. Leave out everything you don't like. You create a Christianity that doesn't look much different than Anthony Robbins or something. How to have a better, powerful, successful life. Dear ones, that is an abomination. It's not 
biblical Christianity. And maybe some of the people promoting this should actually study theology, read their Bibles, and understand these things. Well, saddest measurement says this one, whether by association with important names or with patronage or possessions. All of that's been covered in 1 Corinthians. He says believers are not to return to the bondage of an honor-shame culture where everything revolves around what status is achieved in human eyes. I'm not saying we can't be athletes, we can't compete, we can't do our best, we can't be students, we can't try to get A's when we go to school, to be people that do our jobs well as under the Lord and not under men. When I'm a mechanic, I want to get the car fixed properly, and so on. That's not the point. The point is we are doing whatever we do for the Lord, and honoring him is what really matters. Verse 24. This is a reiteration for the third time of the same statement. Brethren, each one of you is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called. Now, that doesn't imply there won't be changes. Paul had many. In fact, he went from being a zealous disciple of certain rabbi persecuting the church to an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Each one, hakastos in the Greek is a theme, First Corinthians, that word each one, meaning each one individually, and that's used 22 times in 19 verses. This comes up throughout First Corinthians. God is so all-knowing, all-powerful that he takes care of each one of his children, those who know him, individually down to details. He knows everything. He cares about each one, where we're called, what network of relationships we had in our calling, what God intends to use us for now that we're born of him. It's all part of it. And therefore, it's not our job to thwart whatever God intended by getting on some social ladder, but to just be uh, mindful of how God would use us to testify about the grace of God and the reason for the hope that's within us. Each one is important. Now, they were using this in a bad way earlier, aside from 1 Corinthians. I'm of Paul, I'm of Paulus, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ, dividing the church. Paul rebuked that. Each one is important to God, and we shouldn't be trying to compare who's better than somebody else. It says in 1 Corinthians 3.13, by way of reminder, each one's work will become manifest. 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes. It will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and to close the purposes of the heart. Each one, then each one will receive his commendation from the Lord. And then we'll get to that in 1 Corinthians 12 about the gifts. Each one's important. 
If you know the Lord, you're his child. You're important. He saved you for a reason. He'll use you. And don't get beaten up by false judgments about who or what is important. We don't know these things. Someone that might be overlooked by nearly everyone may be the key person in some situation. And don't claim you, God can't use you if you know Christ. He does and he will. Now, an overview again before we get to some applications. Here's the completion of what I preached last week in this one in the chiastic structure. That's like uh, the Greek letter chi. This, then the center, and then back. A, B, A. All the same thing, really. As God has called each person, so much must he live. 720, that was 717. Remain in that situation in life in which he was called. In whatever situation someone was called, let him remain in it. That repetition and that structure emphasizes it and should make it very clear what we're supposed to learn. To me, as I was doing a lot of work to get this together and see how it could be preached, I was thinking, what a shame that 2,000 years of church history mostly has ignored this completely, just ignored it. Anyone who read this and took it as important would never create hierarchical structures of layers of honor and status in the church with cathedrals, spires, popes, cardinals, archbishops. You know, you can go up the ladder and you can be somebody more important in the church than anybody ever was in the world. This is so antithetical to what is being taught. How is it that Christendom has no clue about the gospel? And it's so sad. It's hard not to be just disgusted by it. It's wicked. And evangelicals do the same thing. We've got to ditch it. Serve Christ. Believe the gospel. Serve where you're called. I was watching, uh, as you watch any of the ceremonies and stuff, do you know why they put great big hats on soldiers in the old days? To make them look big, to scare people. Look at this big bunch of people with a big red hat. They're in this army until uh, modern uh, weapons are made and you could shoot them more easily. Why do we have to make ourselves look big to scare people? Is that what Jesus did? We don't need to look big. We don't need to have titles of honor. Jesus rebuked that in Matthew 23. What would happen if Christians believed what God said and lived accordingly? Christendom would lose its support. And nondescript fellowships of Christians would spring up all around the world based on the redeemed within the bigger context of cathedrals and massive things. And that would be people who know the Lord and aren't looking for status. Let's go to some application. When God calls anyone to himself, that person gains true freedom and eternal life as his child. 
That is cold, sober truth right from Scripture. And I would just say as we get into this, if we accept that as true, and I don't know how any Christian could not, then why would we dishonor God by despising that and saying, I need something better? That's good enough. That's not good enough for me. I don't want to be ordinary. Why would we do that? Isn't it enough to be part of his family? Christ's slaves have a change of ownership and glorious status. Three, those who know Christ must not be enticed by false offers of greater status in the world. Greater status in the world. Yeah, you can, we'll, we'll give you something better. Don't hang around with those born-again Christians. They're annoying anyhow. That's how they see it. Nor do we have to polish everything to make it look like, well, you see, uh, we're not so bad. Well, what they're offended at about is what we believe. Who's the Lord and who's the king? Let's go to 2 Timothy 1, 3 through 8. 2 Timothy 1, excuse me, 2 Timothy 1, 8 through 9. I'll read 8a, it didn't fit on the slide, and then 8b and 9. 2 Timothy 1, 8 and 9. Called according to God's plan. I'll read 8a. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord and of me as prisoner. Join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which he granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Granted is given, gave, was given to us granted. So why would Paul say that? Well, when the prison epistles were written, including 2 Timothy, he was in jail. Though he was a Roman citizen and he had rights, and his crime was he kept testifying about Christ and bringing problems to different civil authorities because of the uprising, he was a prisoner. And why would Someone who we think, wow, the Apostle Paul, that's amazing, a true Apostle of Christ, which he was. So why are they, why is he saying, don't be ashamed of me? Because what are their friends going to say? Now that you're a Christian, you heard the gospel, you in Corinth, or here in Ephesus, and Timothy, where Timothy was, and the person who claims to be the spokesperson for Christ is a miserable criminal in Rome. Well, wow, you really got a lot going for you. What status honor do you gain by having a leader who's imprisoned? But the Lord himself was crucified as a prisoner. Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Ashamed is a paskunomai. And I have a dictionary, a dictionary definition from the Greek dictionary. <laughs> to experience a painful feeling or sense of loss of status because of some particular event or activity. 
You lose status because of something. What was it? A prisoner in Rome in this context. Luke 9, 26. It says this, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man, Messiah that is, will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory, the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. It really does boil down to eschatology. Eric had such great Sunday school teaching this morning to point us to the eschatological fulfillment. It strikes me as I was looking at this. If your eschatology is wrong, and you think everything has to happen in this life or it isn't worth it, you're actually simply living in unbelief and calling it faith. If you don't gain riches now, and you consider that too low of a status for somebody important, you're thinking like pagans. If you don't get the glory now, because that's what we want, you're thinking like a pagan. We don't get it all now. We're not believing the promises of God. The promises are eschatological, having to do with the end times. That's why Jesus said, don't be ashamed of me. He wasn't, he didn't have the status that Christendom gives with their false Christ in many times. He was a crucified Jewish Messiah, an offense to Romans, scandal to the Jews, believed upon by a handful of followers, but the very creator, the Lord of glory, the very God, second person of the Trinity, who created the entire universe out of nothing. And he's given us glorious promises. We either believe them or we do not. If we do believe them, then we're willing to accept whatever status we end up with in this life, whether it's one that's praised by men, one that's hated by men. There's all these things that happen. Nothing's ruled out. Rich people are saved. Poor people are saved. Powerful people are saved. Weak people are saved. Young people are saved. Old people are saved. In Christ, there's a lot of different things we are, but we're all winding down. And this is temporal. The promises are eternal. In the commentary in 2 Corinthians, Dr. Yarborough says, whereas witness or testimony today can means one mean one's unique personal inner religious experience, this biblical usage points to a sharing of publicly observed phenomena. So what is it that we have, being the Lord's slaves, that would be a testimony? It's the fact that our hope is in him who forgave our sins, who saved us out of our wretched rebellion against him, protects us from God's future wrath, and gives us eternal promises. That's our witness. Now, what we might feel inwardly. Join with suffering is, translates one word, uh, uh, and its meaning in this context, Paul didn't have status in the eyes of men. Join with me, and whatever happens, do this by the power of God 
and for his glory, not what the world thinks about us. When was this given? Before time, literally, before time's eternal in Christ Jesus. The eternal calling actualized on the scene of history at our conversion, preserved all the way to eternity through eternity future, not to go away or to be removed. Now, the next slide, I'll point out how Paul viewed himself. Romans 1.1, from Paul, a slave, the word doulos, same word in the Greek, of Jesus of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. And so the same word slave is used of Paul, the apostle. So he's not using this teaching to uh, somehow harm others in, in a way that wouldn't apply to him. Everyone who knows the Lord is a slave of Christ. That means we're honored to be serving the greatest master that ever is or ever will be. And we'd be serving, Eric was talking about the corporate unity of those in Christ that will be displayed in eternity, will be part of his kingdom, sharing his honor. People who don't believe the gospel, but yet have a Christian religion, will never go for this. They'll never listen to it. They'll hate it because they think that's just another way of spelling defeat. I cited last time something I read when I was um, writing, uh, researching for an article on the New Apostolic Reformation. The claim that some of the founders of the movement said was this, Christ is not coming back for a sick, disease-ridden, impoverished, defeated church. So there are Christians out there who have said, you're not good enough, Christ doesn't want you. You got too many problems. Get your act together, get healthy, get powerful, get victory, and then once you have that, then we have something we're going to offer him. I can't tell you how offensive that is to the true gospel. To tell dear saints who saved by grace, who lived whatever life they lived to serve him, sometimes in dire situations, giving him honor, or being told they're not even worth the Lord returning for. That's utterly offensive. It's still being said. Paul was a slave of Christ. Galatians 1.10. Am I now trying to gain approval of people or of God? Or am I trying to please people? Rhetorical questions. Applied answer, no, he's not. Here it is. If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a slave of Christ. If you're a slave of Christ, he's the one you serve. He's the one we answer to. He's the one whose approval means something. The world isn't going to approve of what we believe. It's not going to endorse what we believe. 
Most of the church will not endorse redemption, atonement, eternal life, redemption, forgiveness of sins, repentance, all the things that are part of the gospel. The word for pleasing would be, uh, I looked that one up, um, means to act in a fawning manner, win favor, please, or flatter. It's not worth it. We're going to get to it. One last slide. This is so awesome. I had to include it. I, I had to. This is so amazing. In the uh, Hebrews 11 about what happened when people believed the promises of God, we have Moses. What a glory story. Glory story. Let me read it to you here. Hebrews 11, 26, 24 through 26. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. That is amazing. Now, what was going on with Moses? 400 years, roughly 400 years earlier, Joseph, great person in Pharaoh's court, due to God's keeping his promise to Joseph, then they became slaves, and Pharaoh's arose and knew not Joseph, put them in bondage, made them miserable, and whatever the pharaohs did, they kept multiplying. And, you know, I hope you... Maybe you saw the movie. But uh, amazing story. But God didn't forget his promise to the patriarchs. And Moses, when he was born, this is uh, found in Exodus. It says in Hebrews eleven twenty three, leading up to this, by faith Moses, when he was born was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. He was found, as you know, put into an ark, was down, rescued, and he ends up a lot of intrigue, a lot of years, the burning bush and all, but he went back to rescue the Israelites according to the promises God gave out of Egypt, through the Red Sea, in order to bring forth the Messianic promises. I have a statement I wrote. Moses renounced the exalted worldly status of being the son of Pharaoh's daughter, Exodus 2.10, to take on the status reversal of being part of the people of God who were slaves that Pharaoh was trying to destroy. That is what it's like to have faith in God. One scholar says this, the vast value of the treasures of Egypt at the time, the greatest empire in the world, was legendary. Yet Moses refused to compare Egypt's treasures with God's promised reward. Instead, he compared the best Egypt had to offer with the reproach of Christ. Moses reckoned 
that even the reproach of Christ, which is what the world would think of God's promises, by the way, was greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. What about you today? Do you believe that the reproach of Christ is greater riches than everything this world has to offer? The best promotion, the best job, the most accolades from people around, being the most wealthy broker, the greatest movie star, the most fond over uh, person and celebrity. Even in this life, it doesn't turn out too well for most of them. But even if it did, is anything greater honor than having your sins forgiven, knowing the very creator of the universe, being forgiven, being part of the family of God? Are you willing to turn from the honor system of this world, from your own sin, and turn to Christ, who died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order to bring us to God. Turning to Christ, who died for sins and was raised on the third day and ascended to heaven, is coming again to reward his own and to bring punishment to his enemies. Turning to Christ by faith in his finished work shows faith in God's eternal promises. Whatever shame comes in this life, it's nothing compared to the glory and honor of Christ. Today, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Let's pray. We have the Lord's Supper. I'll mention that, what that's about in a moment. Thank you, dear Lord, for allowing us to look into these glorious passages to see what you've done and what you've said. May they penetrate our hearts and our minds deeply so that we believe and live accordingly. Help us to not allow the world to knock us down and discourage us, but may we encourage one another. If there's any here today, I pray, that don't know you, that today would be the day of their salvation and that they may come to you. Thank you, Lord, and uh, we give you the honor as we serve you by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.